presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Okay, we're continuing in our, in our new study now that I've entitled Better Than I Deserve. Last week we, uh, we talked about evangelical Pharisees and today our title is Dignity or Depravity. And uh, so we're, you'll see what we mean by that. I, the reason I think that I began this series was uh, we are inundated in our society by the idea that we're deserving of things. Uh, you hear commercials on television uh, that you need to go to this particular vitamin place because you deserve the best naturally. Well, why do I deserve the best from the vitamin place? The word deserve means it's something that we have merited. It means something that we've earned. I haven't earned anything from the vitamin store. I, have, I don't really merit anything from the vitamin store. I mean, I, if I go in there, I give them money and I get some sort of vitamins or supplements in return. But we've really taken that word deserve and used it a lot, especially in our generation. And unfortunately, one of the things that's happened is we've taken that word deserve and we brought it right into the church, to the body of believers, and we've begun to think, well, you know, as a person who goes to church or as a Christian or whatever, I, I deserve this or I deserve that. And everything in society sort of reinforces that. And we talked about the, uh, we talked about government and all of the so-called entitlement programs that we have now. It's not that I'm against those. It's just that that's part and parcel of the way we think all the time. Now, we talked about um, we talked about education and how the whole emphasis in education is not on getting an education but it's on feeling good about yourself. You've just got to feel good about yourself. Well, you can feel good about yourself and wind up as an ignoramus. Uh, there's a, there is a place uh, uh, for education, and if you do well, then you can feel good about yourself, and if you do poorly, very often that serves as a great incentive to do better the next time. Uh, we saw it in terms of religion. There's a tendency uh, in many circles now to sort of relegate truth to a dusty corner over here that somehow absolute truth doesn't really mean all that much anymore. The really important thing is being inclusive. We want to be sure and get everybody involved, but we don't want to upset anybody that would, and so that anybody would feel excluded. So, and, and that seems to come out of this whole idea that somehow everybody deserves to be taken care of in a certain way. And that's one of the things that we're exploring a little bit right now because it's, uh, it's one thing to say that this person has worked hard at his or her job and you know put in all the hours and so they get a raise in pay and you say, yes, they deserve that because they've worked hard for that. But it's another thing when we haven't hit a lick at a snake to say somehow we deserve something then just because we're here. And when we, again, when we take this whole idea of deservedness and drop it right in the middle of Christianity, 
then we've got a real problem because the, one of the key words in Christianity is the word grace. And what does the word grace mean? It means unmerited favor, unearned favor, something that we haven't earned, that God gives us something not because we deserve it. In fact, we deserve just the opposite. But God has given us something because it just simply pleased Him to do so. And that's, that's kind of the thing that, uh, that we're exploring. Now, I will say this. I, probably having sat through that thing last week and listened to all of that, you can say, well, essentially what you're saying then is that we're sort of victims of society. I'm not saying that at all. Um, in fact, I think I even mentioned in passing the family institution. You know, we, we teach our children from very early on the importance of uh, doing this in order to earn this. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I, it's not that I'm opposed to allowances. It's not that I'm opposed to uh, giving children assigned chores, and uh, you may pay them for those chores. You may not, they, and the payment may be in different forms. It could be in money. It could be in privileges or whatever. I'm, I'm not arguing against that. I think that helps our children clearly to develop responsibility. But when it comes to things like at Christmas time, and I think this is the one I specifically mentioned last week, when we say things to our children like, well, you know, about the 15th of December, you ought to be good or Santa Claus won't come see you, then all of a sudden we're, <clears throat> we're sort of putting pressure on our children and we're teaching our children that, that somehow they've got to earn these things that come from so-called Santa Claus. Now, I'm not opposed to Santa Claus, and I know it's getting close to that time of year. Golly, if you go in Walmart, you know, it had not even Halloween yet. I was in there looking for a hose reel the other day because uh, ours is torn up out at the house. And uh, I, I went out to the garden shop, and man, half the garden shop's already been taken over by Christmas trees and other kinds of Christmas decorations. But one of the things that we taught our kids, and I, I, you know, our kids are grown up, and now we have grandchildren, and I certainly don't insist that everybody teach their children what I did. But one of the things uh, that we taught our children was uh, that Santa Claus was a myth. He was just an interesting character. He's based on a historical figure, but there's really no such person. And all those things that the children got on Christmas morning were from Carol and from me. And we didn't give them to the children because they had earned them, because they deserved them. We gave them to the children simply because they were our children, and we loved them. And, you know, you say, boy, isn't that asking for trouble, though? You know, here's a chance to kind of grind the gears and make them be good at least for a couple of weeks before Christmas. But if we do that, are we really sort of making it tough for our children ever to grasp the concept of the grace of God? I think, um, I think that might be the case. What I want us to do today is I want us to go back to the beginning of the Bible. I want us to look at uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're not going to look at everything in there, and we're not going to read it all, but we're going to look at those three chapters, and we're going to see how it all started in the beginning, that we're going to discover... That, uh, that mankind, that is uh, the, the man and the woman, both started off with great dignity. And we see that in chapter 1 and 2. And then something awful happens in Genesis chapter 3 and depravity enters the picture. And what we'll see, I believe, by the time we conclude our session this morning, 
is that when we look at our lives, we say, yes, there is dignity present in our lives because one of the ways in which we are different from all of the other creatures on the face of the earth is that we bear the image of God. Now, that image of God in us is a marred image, marred because of sin. But there's dignity on that basis. But there's also depravity. Because what we discover is that every part of our personality has been adversely affected by sin. And it doesn't mean that we're, uh, when I say depraved, we get the idea of some, some old dude in a, in a cloak, you know, going around trying to mess with little children and do things like that. Don't get that picture at all. The word depraved simply means that every part of our personality, every part of our being is adversely affected by sin in some way. We're touched in every part of our personality. And I believe as we, as we read through the scriptures and look at Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, that we're going to discover that that indeed is what the Bible teaches. And then next week we're going to continue to look at this, but we're going to look at how God dealt with this and how none of this took God by surprise and he was ready for it even in the Garden of Eden. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's begin by looking at the whole issue of being created with dignity. When you look at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, essentially what you have is two complementary views of, uh, of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, you've got essentially a chronological ordering of the, of the creation. God did this on day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, and on day 6, God created the epitome of his creation, and what was it that God created on the sixth day? That's right, he created the human beings. He created man. So that's what happens on the sixth day, and then on the seventh day, God rested. And that's what Genesis 1 is all about. It's about that chronological ordering. It gives us a little detail about the sixth day when, when man was created, but not a lot. But then when you come to chapter 2, what, what the scriptures do is they zero in on the sixth day. It kind of goes back to the sixth day and it says, okay, now we're going to give you more details. So you get sort of an expanded view of what happened on that sixth day in chapter 2. So let's read through this section and, uh, and just make, I'll make a few comments as we, as we go along here and let's, let's see what we can discover. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. It says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, what do you notice unusual about the pronoun there? Yeah, it's plural. A God there looks like it's in the singular. Actually, in the original language in which it's written, uh, this, this particular word God is the word Elohim. And I am, in Hebrew, is the plural ending. You, you, we sing sometimes about the cherubim and the seraphim, and the I am ending in, uh, in Hebrew is the same thing as you or, you or I in English adding an S or ES to a word, and, and it just simply makes it plural. So here it says, In the beginning God, and God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So what this tells us, it doesn't, it, some people say, well, that proves there's a trinity. No, it really doesn't. What this does is it shows there's a plurality within the Godhead. There's at least two persons in the Godhead. 
And then what we discover as we continue to read the Bible, and remember the Bible is an unfolding revelation, what we discover is there are actually three persons within the context of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we'll talk more about that later. It says, let, uh, let them, that is this man, and it again uses the plural in referring to man here, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So what you discover right away is the first thing that the Bible tells us here about the creation of man is that there's, a, there's this conference going on among these members of the Godhead who decide, okay, now we've got, we've got creation all fixed up here. We've done this for five days. Now it's time to let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the earth. So, it, so the idea was that God was going to put his epitome of creation here on the earth, we're going to see he had a very special place that he designed, a garden. And also that these persons that he was going to put in this garden were persons who were going to serve essentially as vice regents over the earth. In other words, under the rulership of God, they were going to rule, as it says here, over the, over the fish in the sea and the, all the creatures in the land. That's, uh, that's what it's telling us here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice, one of the things it tells us here is that God created human beings as sexual creatures. There's a difference. Now, when God put the, put the two in the garden, we have Adam and Eve. We don't have Adam and Steve. We have Adam and Eve. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now that's the one thing that as human beings that we've done what God commanded us to do. And what's that? Yeah, well, fill the earth, actually. We just, we filled it. I mean, you know, there's just folks everywhere. And it says, and subdue the earth. And of course, what we'll see later on is that uh, uh, in subduing the earth because of sin, we have wreaked uh, havoc in many ways on the environment. I don't think not as much as some environmentalists would, would say that we have, but clearly it's, uh, it's, it's made for a difficult situation. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Notice when it, all, when it first started, essentially it looks like man, uh, the man and the woman were kind of like vegetarians here. There doesn't seem to be any, issue, any question about that. It, uh, uh, man was given uh, meat to eat after the flood. That's when uh, God told Noah that uh, the difference between clean and unclean animals. Uh, but that's not part of our study. And then verse 31 we see something that looks like the same, but it's still a little bit different. It says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, the difference in that statement and all the statements that appear before that, at the end of day one, God said, God saw what he had done, and it was good. Day two, God saw what he had done, it was good. Right through day five, 
But at the end of day six, it says God saw all that he had made and it was very good. The epitome of, cre of, his, of his creation here. Now, Genesis chapter 2. Now remember, that's, that's, that's just a little small look at a real broad picture that we see in Genesis 1. And we look at Genesis chapter 2 and we get sort of an exploded view. You say, well, you sure didn't get a lot of details in, in chapter 1. That's right, God gives us more details in chapter 2. Beginning at verse 7. The Lord God, now incidentally, <clears throat> at this point, there's, a, uh, there's another term that's introduced. Remember in chapter 1, the term God, uh, uppercase and lowercase is used, and it's this word Elohim. What we see in, uh, in, uh, in, in this chapter, we see the term L-O-R-D in all caps introduced. Now when that word is introduced, <clears throat> that's not the same as this. Now obviously it's the same person. But it's, uh, it's the word Yahweh. Remember in the, uh, in the Hebrew language there aren't any vowels. The reader has to provide the vowels as he reads. It's all consonants. And this is where we derive the word Yahweh uh, in the old uh, original American standard version of the Bible. This word was translated by the word Jehovah. Jehovah God. So when it, uh, but this is a reference to God's covenant name. When uh, in, in Genesis, I'm not, not Genesis, in Exodus chapter 3, when God uh, confronts Moses and is going to get Moses to lead the children of Israel uh, out of Egypt and take them to the border there at the Promised Land, uh, Moses comes up with all kind of arguments why God ought to get somebody else instead of Moses. And he's running, finally running out of arguments, and one of the things that Moses says, he says, look, he says, I'm going to go back there, and I'm going to tell those people that the God of their fathers has told me to come back here and lead them out. They don't know me from Adam's house cat. Now, they're going to ask me, they're going to say, who sent you? What am I going to say to them when they ask me who sent you? And remember the way the response was, you tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. That's the same thing. It's the covenant name of God. It means the self-existent one. I've always been here. I'll always be here. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. You remember the psalmist uh, writes, uh, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you because he's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the self-existent one. All right. So Genesis, that will not be on the test, so don't worry about that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God, for, so here we got Yahweh Elohim, the covenant name. See, we're dealing, we're dealing now with man. And so there's a covenant between God and man here. Uh, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The old King James says he became a living soul. Um, now this is, to me, there's a, there's a big difference here in, in what God does when he, when he creates man. How is it that God created the, uh, how is it that God created the earth? What did he do? He just spoke. When God said, how did God bring light into being? What did he say? Let, let there be light. 
Yeah, he didn't flip a switch. He just said, let there be light. Uh, when God wanted to bring uh, the, the creatures and the sea into being, he simply spoke. In other words, it was all by fiat. He just, he just said it and it happened. But notice, when God creates man, and he clearly could have done this, he said, and let there be man. But that's not what he did. God got personally, intimately involved in the process of creation here. Not just speaking a word and bringing it into being, but actually taking personal care and forming this mass of material into a human being. God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Notice you get the, it's the image of this all-powerful being of the universe shaping and molding getting it just like he wanted, and then, and then leaning over, and it's almost like giving CPR, breathing into the nostrils, the breath of life. The word spirit in the Old Testament is the word ruach. And when you say it, you are breathing out. And that's, uh, that's, what, that's, what, uh, that's what God is doing here. It tells us a little bit about the environment at this point. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Incidentally, the, uh, this garden uh, is, believe, is apparently uh, somewhere around the area where Iraq is today because the Euphrates, remember, and the Tigris uh, were, uh, were in that particular vicinity. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east <clears throat> in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And in verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Notice, did, did the man have something to do when he was in the garden? He put him, right, when he put him in the garden, it wasn't just, you know, hey, won't you just hang around in here and soak up a few rays? No, he had purposeful work. There was something for him to do. And remember, one of the things that gives us a sense of who we are is what we do. That's the reason when people retire, very often it's so difficult for them because their sense of who they are is so wrapped up in what they do that when they stop doing that, it's almost like they lose a sense uh, they've kind of lost a sense of who they are. So there's purposeful work for him. Take care of it. Nurture the stuff that's in there. And <clears throat> does God, does it seem that God tells him how to do that? No. He just says, look after it. You know, it's up to Adam to kind of figure out how to look after it. One of the ways you and I are made in the image of God is that we're rational beings. Obviously, some days we're more rational than others, but the truth is, is that God is a thinking person. And you and I think too. Now, obviously, we don't think the way God does. At least, most of the time, we don't. But that's one of the ways we reflect God. So, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you notice this is the single prohibition, the only one. <clears throat> but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what's the big deal about the knowledge of good and evil? Well, for God, uh, for the man that is, how was it that man was supposed to know what was good and what was evil? God told man what was good and what was evil. He didn't need to go to some tree to find out what it was. All he needed to do was trust God because God would make clear what was good, what was evil. And this was kind of this was sort of a test for the man. It uh, uh, you know, would he obey God? Would this was the only prohibition, what would he do? Of course, we know what prohibitions do, don't we? Oh, it stirs us up inside. It's just like hanging that sign up. It says, wet paint, do not touch. What happens inside of you when you see the sign? That's where I say, I'll be dog. That thing really was wet. Now, what am I going to do with this finger here? It's got paint all over it. But that's what we do. And ultimately, of course, that's what happens here. He says, uh, he goes on to say in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good. Now notice, up to this point, everything's been what? It was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And then all of a sudden, the man's in the garden by himself, and the Lord says what? This is not good, this is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now sometimes we take that word helper and we say, ah, there he is. The, uh, the, that means some sort of subordinate kind of person, you know. If the pilot can't handle it, then the co-pilot will help, will handle it. No, you can't really derive that from this. In fact, in the book of Psalms, it speaks of God as our helper in very present times of trouble. It speaks of God uh, a number of times as our helper. Does that mean God is subordinate to us? Lord, I'm, I'm in control right now. If I have trouble, I'll let you know. No, certainly not. So what we're going to see is that this, while clearly there were differences between the man and the woman, in the garden there was a sense of, of real equality. They were to, it didn't say the man will rule and she's going to help him rule. No, that they would rule over all of the things in the earth. Clearly we see that in this passage right here. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So here's something else that the man is doing. Not only is he figuring out how to take care of the garden, but now what's he doing? He's naming all this stuff. Now can you imagine, I don't know whether you remember your high school or college biology or not, I hated that stuff. Because you've got all these classifications. In fact, I, I'd be hard-pressed to remember the stuff about genus and species and all that. Now, I don't know whether Adam went through all that or not, but can you imagine having all of these critters come up here and you've got to come up with names for all of them? I mean, where would, where, where would you get the name aardvark from in the first place? Or you say, well, I'm going to name this one a lion. You say, why? I, well, he just looks like a lion. So well, what do you got? I'm gonna call this one tiger. So well, why are you gonna call this one a tiger? So well, you can't call them all lions. So you know, we just don't understand completely. But I think it is fascinating that you don't see God hanging over the parapets of heaven saying, "That's a dumb name for that thing." No, He let the man name the animals, and so you've got you've got Adam doing productive work there in the garden, and also uh, he's a, he's 
obviously got a great mind. He's able to make distinctions among these animals and classify the animals as he gives them names. And it says, uh, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. He didn't say, that sure was stupid to name that thing an aardvark. I'm just going to have to overrule you on that one. No, doesn't do that at all. Now he goes on to say, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Isn't it interesting that what God did, God knew that it was not good for the man to be alone in the garden. But man was not aware of that yet. And so how is it that God reveals that to him? Well, he reveals it to him by bringing all these animals. And apparently, uh, there must have been kind of, at times, pairs of animals. And he said, well, you know, the chipmunk doesn't exactly correspond to me. And boy, that rhino sure doesn't exactly correspond. I'd be scared to get too close to that thing. And who'd want to hug a porcupine? You know, you get stuck all the time. So Adam came to realize that there was something missing, that the animals had other animals that corresponded to him, to them, but there was nothing to correspond to him. And so he sees what his need is. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. This is the first general anesthesia in the world. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. Now remember, he made man out of the dust of the earth. So you still got the same, essentially the same genetic components. And that's what the woman is. And she corresponds to this guy. And he didn't take a foot bone out. He took, took it out of the side. They would stand side by side. And he brought her to the man. This is the one that corresponds to you. And notice man's response. He said, well, she looks pretty good, but if you take a little off the hips and add to the top, it would be so much better. That's not in there at all. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's part of me. She shall be called woman of uh, the name, the, the word man in Hebrew is the word ish. The word woman is the word ishai. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Notice what, what, what the man did was he received her as God's provision for him. This is exactly what I need, because God knows what I need. Well, we'd all do better if we, uh, if we approached our mates that way. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame notice no shame whatsoever so here you've got them as God's image bearers they have different personalities but they, there's a sense of morality there's, a, there's something right that you're supposed to do but there's a possibility of something wrong and that's eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, there's a sense of spirituality, as we shall see. There was, the, uh, there was the apparently daily habit where God would actually walk in the garden and commune with them. 
So they just they 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 bore the image of God in in all of those respects, and there was great dignity because they were the only creation, the only creature in all of God's creation that was made in the image of God. And then something very terrible happened. That image is marred, and that's what we read about in Genesis chapter three. Now the serpent. Now, when you, when you read the word serpent, don't immediately think of snake. Now, that's what they are today. But in this day, we're not sure what this serpent was, but it was not something that crawled around on its belly. Now, that's what it came to be. That was part of the curse that God pronounced on the ser- serpent. But apparently, the serpent was some sort of beautiful creature. And what we know in reading this is that the old devil had come in and he'd sort of taken up this in the form of this serpent and he had come to tempt the man and the woman who were in the garden. And there was only one way to tempt them. There's only one prohibition, and what's that? Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only thing God had forbidden. So if there's a temptation coming, it's going to come regarding that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Notice the first thing he does is he creates doubt about the Word of God. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That would have been the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, this, and apparently this is the first amplified version because there's another phrase that's added here and it says, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, had God said anything about touching it? No. So now, whether or not that's something that the woman was making up or whether, you know, it was that old crazy man over here. He said, look, baby. He said, God told me, you know, we can eat, any, we can eat fruit from any of the trees except this one tree right here. I'm telling you right now, don't you even touch it. That may be where that came from. We don't have any idea for sure. But anyway, it's a little addendum there to, uh, to God's prohibition. Or you will die. What happens? Oh, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Notice, now this time, it's not having doubt in God's word. It's actually disputing God's word. saying, God's lying to you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's holding out on you. You eat of that, you're not even going to need God. Why, God's the one who tells you what's right and what's wrong. You won't, you won't need God, because you will know instinctively what's right and what's wrong, having eaten, all, having eaten of that. You know, God's holding out on After all, God, apparently God just kind of needs to be needed. And so he's got this in there just to give you a hard time. See, dis- doubting God's word, disputing God's word, and also disputing God's goodness. That, you know, God, God only cares about himself. He doesn't really care about you. If he really cared about you, he wouldn't put this prohibition about this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband. Notice who was where? With her 
and he ate it. He's standing right there when all this is going on. And the guy should have been saying, baby, don't be listening to that serpent. You know how those rascals lie, but they go along with it. Doesn't tell us why. We know what the motivation is. Uh, motivation is apparently having complete autonomy. I don't want to. I don't want to have to depend on God. Same problem you and I have. We we don't want to have to depend on God for anything. We'd rather have it our own way. If I, if we have to depend on God, that means God's going to do it in His time frame, and He may or may not do it anyway. Well, if it depends on me, it'll get done, and it'll get done when I want it to get done. We don't want to depend on God. They didn't either. Notice what happens, verse 7. You see the immediate results, and this is what's known as the fall. This is what we see as original sin. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Say, what's the big deal? Well, notice what they did. When they realized they were naked... They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what we see right away is this realization of their situation resulted in their experiencing shame. Otherwise, there's no other explanation for why they'd want to cover themselves other than they felt shame. And why did they feel shame? They disobeyed. They were guilty. They were guilty of disobeying God and the guilt produced shame and the shame resulted. They say, oh God, we've messed up so bad. Please help us. Please help us. We are so sorry. You don't see that. Oh no, how can we cover this up? And then when God comes down, as we'll see in just a moment, to visit in the evening, God's not surprised. He's not taken aback by all of this. But what are they doing? They're hiding from God. Let's keep reading. So there's shame. There's a desire to flee from God. We see that verse, the next verse. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why would they hide? They were ashamed. They were guilty. They'd broken God's single law. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? You think God really knew where he was? I suspect he did. If God is omniscient, and that's what the Bible teaches, God knows everything, but God wanted the man to see where he was. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now again, God is not looking for information here. God is simply confronting his sin. And notice, again, the man says, Oh Lord, I'm guilty. I'm so sorry. Please have mercy on me. No, I wish he had said that. It says, the man said, The woman... So next, the first thing he does is point to her. And then the next word is you, the woman you put here to put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. In other words, whose fault is it? It's her fault indirectly, but it's mostly your fault. Did I ask for this? I didn't ask for this one. I was perfectly happy. I was out there naming the animals. I've taken care of the garden and the next thing I know, 
you put the sleeper hold on me, and I wake up, and there's this gorgeous creature. Now, I, you know, I've really enjoyed that, but the truth is I didn't ask for her. But see, that's what we do. We're always blaming. It's somebody else's fault. Now, I'm not responsible. It's somebody else's fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And notice what the woman said. Well, the serpent deceived me. And now that was true. The serpent did deceive her. But she still knew the right thing to do. And she chose wrongly. And clearly so did the man. <clears throat> I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. See, here's part of the curse. This is what happened to the serpent after the fall. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What in the world does that last thing mean? That's what's known as the proto-evangelicum. It's the first mention of the gospel. You say, I didn't see Jesus' name in there anywhere. No. But he says, what's going to happen is the woman eventually is going to produce an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. But this offspring of the serpent is going to strike at the heel of the offspring of the woman. And it's a picture of Messiah who ultimately would come into the world. And the old devil would think he had him by the throat when he went to the cross but in going to the cross and dying for the sins of all of his people, he crushes the head of the serpent. Now we're going to talk about this in great detail in the weeks to come. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. So all of a sudden, there are going to be relational difficulties. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it. So you're still going to take care of things, but son, it's going to be a rough, tough road to hold now. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plant, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the dust. Return to the dust means what? Die. What had God said was going to happen? They were going to die. Now, what we discover is they'd already died spiritually when they made that decision. That's why we see them hiding and running from God, seeking to hide themselves. They had died spiritually, and they had, the processes had begun where their bodies were beginning to decay, and ultimately they would die physically. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord, and then notice verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's an important verse. What does this say about the adequacy of the coverings that they had made for themselves? Wasn't any good. You said, well, it covers up stuff. How come this isn't good enough? Said, no, 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 no. It's not good enough. What God did was he said, no, that's... Covering yourself is not enough. Your own type of righteousness is not good enough. Remember what Isaiah said? He said, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But he said, 
I'm going to cover you with something else. Now notice he didn't cover them with wool, didn't go out and shear a sheep. He covered them with what? Skins. There's only one way to get a skin, and that's you have to kill an animal. So here you have a picture of substitutionary sacrifice that something innocent had to die. And after that death, God took the skin and wrapped it, each of them, in that animal skin. It's a picture of the believer, the true believer in Christ being wrapped in the very righteousness of Christ, that we are clothed with His blood, with His own righteousness, that seeking to establish our own righteousness is of no use because we can't do enough good stuff. We have to trust in Christ. And the last thing that God does in verse 23, it says, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. And the reason for that is God said, we got to get him out of here because he might reach out and eat from the tree of life. Now what would be bad about that? It means that that man or that woman would have lived forever in that fallen condition. So God gets him out of the garden and they never get to eat from that tree of life. But through faith in Christ, we do eat of the tree of life, and we do live forever. Oh, we still are going to die, and one day, you know, they're going to put our bodies out here at the cemetery, or we'll be uh, uh, taken to the crematorium or wherever, but we will rise in our, uh, one day at the resurrection, and, our, and new bodies will be attached to our new souls and we will live with Christ forever. First human beings were created by God in His own image and thus possessed great dignity and honor since they alone bore distinction, this distinction throughout God's creation. They reflected God in their personality, their morality, their spirituality, and they represented God as vice regents over the earth. But then depravity came into the picture. They, there was the fall. And they died spiritually. They lost their dominion. But in God in His grace provides for every need for them. So presently, when we think of our own lives, we need to think of ourselves this way, that we are human beings who possess both dignity and depravity. That you and I are made in the image of God. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.